Money FM 89.3, best of the evening runway. Culture Club. Money FM 89.3. Good afternoon. It is the evening runway. I'm Elliot Danker. Time now for Culture Club. We're going to talk about business travel. It's always been an integral part of the corporate world. It provides opportunities to meet clients face-to-face, attend conferences, networking events, and, of course, explore new markets. All of that went into a standstill when the world went into lockdown due to COVID-19. But as we go into this post-COVID-19 world, tighter corporate budgets and new ways of virtual working seem to have permanently changed business travel. So are the days of high-flying, big-spending business travel over for good? Or have companies adopted a cheaper way for business travel? Well, on the line with me is Veteran Say, who is a managing director at FCM Asia. Good afternoon. How are you? Good afternoon. Very good. Thank you. And thanks for having me today. Thank you for taking the time. FCM, of course, one of the world's largest global corporate travel management companies. Tell us a little bit about this study that you've conducted on how business travelers are traveling in 2023 versus 2019. Yeah, so obviously, as you might imagine, like business travel being the core of our business, we kind of look at a lot of data points to try and understand and forecast how the business is going to evolve in the coming years. And, you know, I like to say all the time that business travel is like the blood of the travel economy because it's usually very aligned to the GDP mm-hmm. because obviously companies need to travel to see their customers or supply chain or whatever they need to do to grow their business. And what we see in 2023 is obviously a very strong demand in business travel. And you just mentioned that in your introduction, but obviously during the pandemic, we were kind of wondering how this would look like. We were quite hopeful that companies would go back to the road and get, you know, people, you know, meeting their customers again. And it's good. It's happening. So this is obviously very exciting for the industry. And you probably saw a few airlines announcing very uh, good results recently. And a lot of that is also driven by business travel, which usually has a big consumption of premium classes on airplanes, obviously. So, yeah, I think it's looking pretty good and probably quite exciting also for 2024 as a projection. Mm. Bertrand, just to get a little bit more in-depth detail, you say there is demand and it looks good, but at the same time, is it safe to say the routine of business travel is back or the routine is back plus the term business travel has evolved a little bit? What are your thoughts on this? So listen, it's an interesting point. So right after the pandemic, we saw that the trips were much longer and that suggested that people were actually using their business trips to also okay. extend for leisure travel or see their families or do all the things that you want to do when you extend basically your trip. Now we are kind of back to the same pattern that okay. we saw before COVID. So that's an interesting fact. When we look at class of travel as well, you know, post COVID, I mean, right after the pandemic and especially in the market like Singapore, we saw a huge increase of the demand in business class. And the reason was that people felt a bit more safe, obviously, in business class because, you know, social distancing and all of those things were a big topic at the time. Now, if we look at the data, we are exactly in the same line as we were in 2019, with basically the premium classes being at the same level as what they used to be uh, before 
before the pandemic. So what I'm trying to say here is that travel policies have not evolved mm-hmm. as much as we would have expected and that people are kind of traveling the same way they used to. It's probably only the first class, which, as you know, only happens in a very limited yeah. amount of aircraft anyway. But we see a drop on, but the rest is quite stable, to be fair. Slightly different perspective. Is it correct to say that corporate travel is a good indication of an economic matrix? It is, absolutely. I mean, you know, the pandemic was probably the only time where it wasn't the case because, as you know, travel was not existing at all. And this is the time where companies needed to use alternatives such as, you know, online meetings and things like that. But we knew that it was only going to be for a short period of time. And if you look at what we learned coming out of COVID, the countries that reopened the fastest and that could get travel coming back the fastest are the ones today which probably grew and recovered the fastest as well. And if you take the example of China, which, as you know, was very long to come back to reopening and all of that, they kind of lost a lot of traction. So I'm not suggesting that this is just because travel was not existing, that China is struggling a bit with its economy right now. But what I'm saying is that it's a good indication that when the doors are not opened and when uh, potentially we put barriers for people to travel, it has impact or ripple effect on the traffic overall and the economy. Uh, talking about China, I just wanted to tell you that as an example, the in from Singapore, in our business, in 2019, Shanghai was in the top three destination uh, for our customers. Now it's not even in the top five. Mm. Uh, that seems to indicate that maybe there's a bit less economical relationship between the two countries at the moment. Mm. And, you know, it's hard to know whether this is a long-term trend, but this is definitely a fact. If I wanted to be optimistic, I mean, you mentioned China, <laughs> even uh, India to China. I know in September, they temporarily rel- relaxed some visa rules. Uh, Yes, a visa is required in their travelling to China. To be optimistic, how then can Singapore benefit from countries who have put in place restrictions? Yeah, it's a very good question. And listen, what you just said, like, come on, it's very hard for any Indian citizen to go to China and vice versa right now. You did say that, yes, they made it a bit easier, but the reality is that 99% of the visas are actually rejected, just so you know, between the two countries. So it yeah. means that the two biggest in the economies in the region are actually preventing people from travel to one another, which yeah. is quite sad when you think of it. So. It's a good thing for Singapore because Singapore doesn't require a visa for both countries, obviously, and this means that it can position Singapore as a meeting place for people wanting to do business and not having to go through the hurdle of visa approval and all of that. So being an open economy, and we know that it was always the positioning of Singapore, really helps to drive a lot of meeting and events Mm. in the Singapore market. And as we know, you know, it has been extremely valuable for the country since the comeback from the pandemic, obviously. So it's happening. Mm. Singapore aside, though, Bitran, what about the rest of Asia? What are some of the biggest routes for business travel here in Asia? So 
know, a lot of people still travel long haul. Like, you know, London is typically in the top list okay. from both Singapore and Hong Kong. The U.S. is still a very strong market, whether uh, San Francisco, Los Angeles, New York are usually big destinations. Uh, here in the region, obviously, the routes to India, Delhi, Mumbai, and also now the second category of cities, such as Hyderabad or all those cities are definitely taking off. So I would say, and Sydney, obviously, for Australia, which is uh, the biggest airport in Australia right now, and there is also a big demand for those routes. Mm. So I, I would say that the traffic has really picked up. Uh, you know, Singapore is probably at 90% of the capacity pre-COVID, which is very close, and some of the destinations where Singapore doesn't fly to anymore were a bit less business travel anywhere. But I would say that for most of the traditional business travel routes now, you have capacity back and you have competition back. And this is driving a bit of the average ticket price, as we call it. So the average airfare, basically, a bit lower, which I guess is good news for corporate travelers because Mm -hmm. they pay less now than they were. Just to give you an indication, we are around 25% lower now than we were in March this year. So there is a big drop in terms of average ticket price and that helps I guess companies to spend a bit less and still get their people traveling. Okay. The problem with that is that though hotel yeah. rates have yeah. gone up quite dramatically. <laughs> so you pay a bit less for your airfare but you need to pay more for your hotel at destination. Oh dear. Because, yeah I know, I know we you, never win. You read my mind because that we often forget that hotel is part of the ecosystem of travel. So if that one's going up, my gosh. Hey, your study found that Cabin class booking patterns in Singapore remains relatively the same. Could you, I don't know, elaborate a little bit more? You know, why is this case for Singapore? What about other countries like Malaysia? Malaysia was always big in economy class anyway. So it's been also very stable on that front. And the same applies to Hong Kong as well. So, you know, as, as I said, I think the demand in terms of premium classes remain quite flat as what it was before COVID. And, you know, it, it's also because we keep thinking that business travelers by default flight, uh, fly in the front of the cabin. Still today, between 60 to 70 percent of corporate travelers are flying in economy, just Mm. to be very clear. So, you know, there is still a big demand for economy travel, even for, you know, uh, business travelers. So I think it's a bit sometimes a bit of a myth expecting that everyone is flying in economy in a business class. Yeah. Yeah. For Hong Kong, they saw a dip across all four cabin class bookings, although capacity is increasing month on month. How should I read the data here? Well, the thing is that Hong Kong was, first of all, it took a while to come back from the pandemic because until China was reopened in January this year, Hong Kong was not really uh, coming back to a full capacity. And the airlines in the market really struggled to get back to certain level of capacity as well. They were struggling with aircraft. They were struggling with staff. And as you know, airline staff, it takes time to train them because obviously you have all the dimension around safety and, you know, obligations and regulation, which makes it quite hard to get capacity back. And because they probably did it a bit later than most of the other airlines in the region, they really struggled to be back at capacity. So this is the reason why today in Hong Kong, we are probably around 75% 
of pre-COVID capacity. And it has accelerated over the, two, the past two to three months, to be fair, because before the summer, we were more around the 60 to 65% uh, range. And what we see from Hong Kong is that the demand of premium cabin has dropped quite significantly as well. So it means that technically we sell more economy class than before mm. in, in the Hong Kong market. Okay. It's that time of the year where we start looking ahead to next year and talk about trends. There's an interesting one that's popped up on the sustainability front. Europe having an incentive that promotes short travel via train instead of air. Airports themselves have been forced to reduce domestic flight capacity when rail is an alternative. So that's happening in Europe. What do you think about what could happen here in Asia, obviously for Singapore it'll be hard, but for Malaysia upwards, what are your thoughts? Yeah, it's a very good question. And listen, it's still a bit hard to understand what's going to be the impact of all of this. Europe is usually leading the way when it comes to sustainability and they are trying to basically achieve the goals that they agreed in the Paris, you know, treaty a while back which we know we are quite far off, to be fair. When it comes to Asia, you know, you have markets where rail is actually quite prominent. If you think of markets like Japan or China, you can say that rail is now a real alternative Mm. to air because you have like speed rail all across the country. And sometimes it's faster to go from the city center to a city center rather than going to an airport, taking a flight and then having to commute again on the other side. So, you know, it's going to be uh, interesting to see what comes out of the different government policies across the region. One thing I can tell you for sure is that the interest from our customers around sustainability, getting visibility on how much their carbon footprint, basically, how much they use for every trip and all that. This is becoming a very common thing across every company. But now we are really starting to have greater, you know, interactions around SAF, you know, the sustainable aviation fuel, because companies can technically buy SAF to be able to help airlines to fly greener somehow. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of dynamics around that which are happening, which, uh, you know, should be probably a at the time for another of these sessions. But yeah. it, it's actually quite fascinating to see how companies are really starting to look at corporate travel from a sustainable uh, angle and what does it mean for them, their policies, and also how they want to basically help reduce the footprint as much as they can. I guess that's an excuse for us to catch up again and continue <laughs> that next part of the conversation. But, yeah, that was a teaser. <laughs> I've been speaking with Bertrand Sae, who is uh, Managing Director for FCM Asia. Thank you so much for your time today. Take care and have a great Thursday evening. Thank you. My pleasure. Talk to you soon. To listen to more great interviews, download our podcasts at audio.sg or download the audio app. That's A-W-E-D-I-O, audio at the App Store and Google Play.